in 2 Kings 5. 2 Kings 5. Let's jump into this. Um, a couple of things I want to share with you guys. Um, first of all, this has been a powerful section of the scripture. We went from the ministry of Elijah to, in chapter 2, the mantle, literally the mantle, being passed down to Elisha. Elisha is filled with a double portion of God's spirit. Elisha seems to do twice as many recorded miracles as Elijah. Um, it's interesting because in 2 Kings, well, in the New Testament, Elijah, I know this can get confusing, but Elijah, like the OG prophet, he's mentioned 29 times in the New Testament. Elisha is mentioned once. And Elisha's mentioned once based off this story here in 2 Kings 5. And so we'll read that in a, in a little bit. Um, but Elisha has a very powerful ministry. God uses him in just very effective ways. We have a lot to learn from the, the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. If you remember, uh, 1 Kings 12 was a huge pivotal chapter in the Old Testament. Because you might get confused, I get confused, it's a lot. But remember, Israel under David and then Solomon, and then it's split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is called, oh man, come on guys, we've done this so much. The northern kingdom is called Israel. How many tribes were in the northern kingdom? Ten. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And so you have Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, over the kingdom of Judah. You had really, that's where the priests were. That's where the temple was. Uh, sadly, like that's where the sacrifices were made. Then in the northern kingdom, in Samaria, that's where they made their capital. That's why they kind of invented their priests. The reason why this is so important for you guys to understand is when you read the Old Testament, maybe you get overwhelmed. Like who is what king? Where were they? My hope is to kind of follow the storyline a bit. So we've been looking primarily at Elijah and Elisha, who primarily ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's where they most, spent most of their time. If you remember, Israel, the ten, the 10 tribes in the north. When I say Israel, it's weird. I think of all the tribes, but it's really the 10 tribes at this time. Israel was completely like evil for the most part. They never once had a good king. Just bad king after bad king after bad king. Sometimes the king was mixed, but just constantly evil kings. And despite that, God was still so good and gracious to the northern kingdom of Israel. It blows me away that God sent prophets. God showed them love time and time again, despite them never having a good king. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, we'll get to that more in the second half of this, of second kings. They had about five good kings in their history. That's it. Five. And you see that there's times where they had revival. And God moved in powerful ways. We'll look at those beautiful kind of revival meetings. So I'm sharing this because I want you to get a good picture of what's going on. Now, last week, if you're with us in chapter four, um, I, I, I heard I went a little long. So I'm sorry about that. Alarms are going off. People are like, come on, just like, what do you do? I'm sorry. There's just such a good, it was just so good. But in 2 Kings 4, uh, we looked at a couple powerful stories. We looked at two women who God met them in, in just miraculous ways. A woman whose sons were going to be sold into slavery unless she paid her debt. God provided oil. As the pots were filled with oil, she filled them up and she, pay, she sold the pots to pay off her debt. Then there's a woman called the Shunammite woman. She was just an awesome, remember she was so hospitable. She loved Elisha. She welcomed in her home. Elisha's like, what do you want? She's like, I'm good. I'm content. And she, Elisha finds out, well, she's always wanted a son. She's always wanted a kid, never had one. So Elisha's like, you're going to have a kid this time next year. She has a son. If you guys remember the son around probably the age of five, uh, gets his head injury or some, something happened in the head. He dies on her lap. She runs to him. And if you remember, we just sung the song, but I love it. She runs to him and Elisha's servant stops her. And he's like, is everything okay with you and your family, your son? She's like, all is well. All is well. He's like, is everything okay? All is well. We talked about how this woman was very content. She was very content. She's very at peace with her life before her son. I believe she really meant that answer. But here's the reason why I'm, I'm bringing this up as we kind of transition to five. She said, all is well 
but she came in bitter distress. Um, if you are a follower of Jesus, it's weird how both of those truths can exist at the same time. How all can be well, and you can also be in bitter distress. Um, and this is one of those things that I think we as Christians, we're walking through these unique moments where you feel like, my world, this is changing, but yet I have a peace all as well. I want to just transition, not to spend too much time on this, but a couple weeks ago, my mom was diagnosed with um, cancer. And uh, <clears throat> um, you know, so a few weeks ago, she, for a while now, she's had a pain in her ribs. They found a large mass on her, on her ribs. <clears throat> they did a, a biopsy, sent it to a few different labs. They thought it was like stage four lung cancer. Um, just different pathologists kind of said it just kind of came back like, we're unsure what this is. Um, some have thought it's stage four lung cancer, some have thought it's breast cancer, some have thought it's came back and hit certain markers of salivary gland cancer. Um, there's, basically, they're treating this as cancer of an unknown origin. Um, I'm bringing this up, my mom started chemo on Monday. I know as several of you know, several of you don't know, and I don't, my hope of just bringing this up is, one, we just covet your prayers right now. You know, I'm very thankful for, for you who just are just, you know, just covering her in prayer. My dad, my parents moved here about a year ago, um, and, you know, they're walking through this in this season. And so I'm bringing this up. I want to say thank you guys for those who, who've been aware and just are praying and will continue to pray. I know this has been a rough week. She's had her first kind of, you know, eight-hour day of, like, chemo on Monday. Um, she'll get it every three weeks. She'll have probably about four doses, so around early July, she should hopefully see her, her last uh, dosage. Um, but obviously, it's a lot. You know, it's a lot to walk through. The chemo's pretty, um, you know, st strong. They're just treating it as, like, cancer of an unknown origin. So they're just kind of, you know, shooting her with a lot of chemo. Um, so just one, again, keep her in prayer. Two, keep my dad in prayer. Uh, our family, my son, this is his third grandparent walking through cancer. And I know it's just, it's tricky. I bring this up for a couple reasons again. Um, one, if, if you're like, did you seem out of it? Unless maybe there's, <laughs> you know, there's a reason. Or if something's going on, you're like, what's going, I just, I just thank you for your patience. Thank you for your prayers. Um, and this is just something that, you know, I went over last Sunday, Silver was there, so sweet, Silver's there, just opening the Bible, encouraged my parents, reading scripture to them, and, um, you know, this Shunammite woman, obviously the message was like, just hit me hard last week, that's probably why I went long, so sorry, um, but it's just the idea of all is well, and yet she was in bitter distress, and it's okay, I think, to experience both, where you go, this is really heavy, and yet, I know my Redeemer lives, you know, and there is that unique balance where we ask that question, how can someone say all is well when your world is, world is falling apart? The only answer is resurrection. And she experienced it in her lifetime with her son. He, he rose again. But we all, if you believe on Jesus, we're told we too will rise again. And I think the only way to answer the question of how is everything well, because it's, it's not, it's bitter distress and it's well. <laughs> how is it both? Resurrection. It's the only thing that gives us hope. So one, I just thank you for your prayers. Uh, thank you for your love. Thank you for your support. And just, um, you know, obviously, it's a unique thing to walk through, and it's not something we want to talk about all the time. And so I just wanted to make sure I informed you guys, filled you in on, and just, um, just we cover your prayers in the season. I'm sharing this with you guys because this is the story of Elisha. Elisha just experienced just resurrection power in his ministry in a unique way. Here in chapter 5, we see an incredible story of grace. I think it's one of the best examples of salvation in the Old Testament, the story of Naaman, the leper. So I want to pray, and uh, we'll jump into that. Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you that your son Jesus promised us and showed us resurrection, that if we believe on you, 
though we die, we shall live. Lord, we thank you that um, we do not sorrow as the world sorrows, because we have a hope, a hope that does not disappoint. However, Lord, we just acknowledge this the pain of it can be confusing or frustrating. There's so many people in this room, Jesus, who are walking through similar things. And I just ask that your Holy Spirit would just overwhelm them with your love. God, that your Holy Spirit would just meet them, just speak to them. God, remind, remind us today, we are not alone, that you have promised to be with us. We just thank you, Jesus. There is no one like you. We thank you, Lord, that we can face um, the world and everything it throws at us with you. And so, Jesus, we just ask that you'd speak. God, we ask that um, the story of Naaman and the greedy servant Gehazi, that you'd just speak to our hearts, that you'd remove idols in our lives today, God, that anything that's been taking your place in my life and our lives, Jesus, that you would just take your rightful place on the throne of our lives. And so, Jesus, we just want to say thank you. We look to you now. We ask that you'd speak in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Jeremiah 9, 22, I want to read this to you guys. Jeremiah 9, 23 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Everyone say amen. For in these things I, de I delight, declares the Lord. I love this. Let not the, the mighty man boast in his might, or the rich man boast in his riches. But if you're going to glory in anything, let him glory in this, that you just know the Lord. If there's anything to glor glory in, if there's anything to boast in, it's like, I know the Lord. Have you ever met anyone who just needed humbling? You're like, oh. You meet them for like one minute, and you're like, you need to be humbled, man. Now, if you've ever thought that, it probably applies to you as well. Let's just be honest. I've thought that. I'm like, oh, that person needs to be humbled, and God's like, and you don't? I'm like, oh, yeah, true. It's, just, it's funny how we always think someone else needs to be humbled. They're so arrogant. They're so cocky. And God's like, huh, you think pretty highly of yourself. Well, God, I mean, I'm not like them. I, it's, just, it's just funny. Um, if you've ever met someone like that, it just reveals your heart, one that you need to be humbled as well. I need to be humbled as well. And it's, it's fascinating to me. If you've ever met someone like that, you're like, oh, Lord, humble them. Here's what's crazy. Um, if you've ever thought about it, thought about it in this way, um, maybe you're trying to join different, maybe you've been a part of sports teams or in college, it could be the fraternity or sorority, or maybe there's like that hell week in sports. There's always this idea of like, you're an outsider. And if you want to be an insider, I mean, you're going to go through it. The idea of like the outsider to the insider, it's like there's almost a humbly that needs to happen. When I think back to high school, man, my freshman year, and like, you know, when you're a freshman playing sports, they just call you like fresh mate. And I don't know, just some of the things they put you through, I'm, I honestly probably blocked out half of those things. Like, I just, it's funny, like back then, you know, this is like early 2000s before like bullying was a thing. It's just, it, this is just what they did, you know? And now you just kind of blocked it out. You're like, that didn't happen to me. Um, Man, they kind of have those kind of weeks, right? I, I laugh at this because I still think this is one of the best things ever. Like in 2010, when Tim Tebow was a rookie, maybe you guys know this, they got him, shaved his head, and they gave him like this monk haircut. I'm going to put a picture up. Um, I love this. <laughs> and I love this because like, you know, Tim Tebow, he's like, it was great. It brought team chemistry. Like, it's like positive. It's like nothing could phase him. I love that. Like, it couldn't even get to him. Like, come on, that would, that would who, no one wants that. No one wants it. Please remove that haircut. That's just too bad to look at. 
But I love there's always some sort of, all right, you're on the outside, you want to be brought on the inside, we're going to do something to you. Like there's almost this humbling that happens to be brought in. Um, here's the idea. It is fascinating. Um, a lot of times people think about heaven in this way, and this is just a, this is a wrong thought. They think heaven is where good people are and, and bad people are out. It's like good people are in, bad people are out. That's not heaven. If I had to put it one way, according to scripture, it's not that good people are in, bad people are out. It's that the humble are in and the proud are out. That's probably the best way I could put it. Obviously, you could say, no, those who've been saved by the grace and blood of Jesus, absolutely. But here's how I want to put it. Um, there's only one person or people group that God resists. Maybe you know this, but it's James 4, 6. It starts off this way, and I want to look at the first half. It's beautiful. It says, but he gives more grace. Wow. He gives more grace. But God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. This is a fascinating verse to me in James 4. He gives more grace. But God opposes the proud, or resists the proud is what it says, and he gives grace to the humble. Isn't that fascinating? You know that the idea is anyone can come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. But there's, a, there's almost this humiliation or humility that has to take place. Because by coming to Jesus, you're saying, I'm not good enough. I'm a filthy, wretched sinner. By coming to Jesus, you're letting everyone know that like, people are like, oh, Christianity is just a crutch. You're like, no, it's, it's more than that. It's a coffin. I mean, it's, it's more than a crutch. Like, I'll, I'll agree with them and say, no, you're thinking too highly of Christianity. <laughs> it's actually lower than you think. It's basically saying, deny yourself. Die to yourself. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. The idea is, it's not good people are in, bad people are out. It's that the humble are in and the proud are out. God gives more grace. Even the way that's word is like, he just, he pours out grace continually. But if you're arrogant and prideful, you're going to miss it on that grace. If you're someone who says, I don't need God. I don't need this. I don't need Christians. I don't need any of this. Okay, then you will get that. You'll get exactly that. It's fascinating how God resists, but he gives grace to the humble. Those who say, God, I need it. I'm help, help me. Help me. Lord, I'm like broken. I'm messed up, God. I'm, I don't have it all together. I'm not as, as good as I think I am. I'm actually, I'm probably way worse than I think I am. The idea is when you come to him, God's like, yeah, I give grace to the humble. I give more grace. You know, in James 4.10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the story of Naaman. The story of Naaman is this general, basically, most likely the second in command of all of Syria. And he has everything going for him, but he's a leper. And it's almost like you want to be brought in, you want to be cleansed, you want to be healed. I'm going to ask you to do some really humbling and humiliating things that you're uncomfortable with. That really the idea is going to God and basically even confessing your need, it, it's a humbling thing. And so Naaman, it's not so much about the leprosy we're going to see in this chapter, it's about the pride and the ego God is trying to tear down. So we think of Naaman the leper, but it's more than that. So here's what I want you to say with me. There's just really two kind of stories that are kind of happening here. So we're looking at the first story. First story is Naaman. Number one, Naaman, the story of grace. Number two is Gehazi, Elisha's servant. And we're going to see the story of greed. We're going to spend a lot more time on number one, a lot more time on Naaman. It's a powerful story of salvation in the Old Testament. It's so, it so speaks of the New Testament form of salvation. And then we're going to see the story number two. We'll spend a little bit less time on or a lot less, but it's number two is the story of greed with Gehazi. All right, you guys ready? Yes? Can we do this? Number one, let's look at Naaman, uh, the story of grace. Look at verse one. Verse one, we'll pick up. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him, the Lord had given him victory to Syria. 
He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on, the, on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Let's just stop there really quick. Um, I want to break this down in a few ways just so you can kind of see this. Because as we walk through the story of Naaman, you can kind of see the different kind of uh, things that take place in his life. Number one is this. We're going to walk through this. He's going to need the Lord. He's needing the Lord. He's going to seek the Lord. He's going to resist the Lord. He's going to trust the Lord. He's going to serve the Lord. If you just look at this really quick, because I don't know how much we'll get back to it, but um, this is so often how it kind of works in life. You and I need the Lord, man. We need him. Um, oftentimes we seek him, but in reality, we realize he's been seeking after us. But we seek the Lord. Maybe you've been on a journey like, I just want to know God. Is there a God? How can I know him? I want to know him. You maybe so you realize the need, you begin to seek, then you kind of go resist. Like, wait a second, what is he asking me to give up? What is he asking me to do? Hopefully you get over that one, then you can eventually trust him. You're like, you know what? His plans are way better than my plans. Then you trust him, and then you're like, I want to serve this guy. He's pretty awesome. All right, this is kind of how it's laid out here. So if you look at the first one, he has a great need for the Lord. He's needing the Lord. Now look at verse, uh, again, um, well, actually before that. This, as I mentioned earlier, this is the only time Elisha's name is mentioned in the New Testament. I think that's fascinating. It's Luke 4, 27. We'll put the verse up. It says, there were many lepers in Israel the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. In Luke 4, people get really mad at Jesus. They're they're mad. Jesus starts giving different examples how the gospel essentially went to the Gentiles, how God worked not just among the Jewish people, but amongst the Gentile world. Notice how Jesus says that. He goes, don't you remember Elisha? Uh, In Elisha's time, there's many, many lepers. And it wasn't all these Jewish lepers that got healed. It was a Gentile Syrian leper that got healed. And basically, Jesus used this as the gospels for everyone. The gospel is not just for us and our people. The gospel is absolutely for everyone. You have to know that. The gospel is for everyone. This grace is available to everyone. There are beautiful stories in the Old Testament where God's like, did you forget that I'm not just the God of the Jews and the God of the world? That I also want to, I want to reach the Gentile world through the Jewish people. But do you not know that I love, I love, I so love the world that at different points in times, I give you examples and stories and illustrations of how I saved and how I worked. So kind of keep that in the back of your mind. But you have this guy named uh, Naaman. Now, Naaman, as verse 1 says, he was a commander of the army of the king of Syria, uh, was a great man um, with his master and in high favor. So uh, Naaman's a unique guy, man. He's a Syrian general, probably the second in command. He has essentially everything going for him. He has wealth, honor, prestige, authority, weight. He can speak to the king of Syria. He has unique favor. It even says this, by the way. I says, by him, the Lord had given him victory to Syria. Did you see that phrase? By him, the Lord gave victory to Syria. God used a non-believer. Like, yes, God used a non-believer. God seems to use non-believers in a lot of different ways at a lot of different times. We won't fully get into that, but God does seem to work in unique and different ways. And this guy was one of those guys. He had a lot of things going for him. You have to see like everything on the outside look really good. It says this, but, but he was a leper. Just that. Everything's good, but you know what? He has this skin disease that essentially is killing him. And you got to understand like leprosy, there's cures today essentially through many antibiotics that you can run at the same time. But back in this day, it was like an incurable disease. It's like you got leprosy, you're going to get nerve damage. Maybe organs will eventually shut down and fail. Like you're going to die. This guy's like, oh, I have a death sentence. 
Here's the idea of leprosy. I'll put it up this way. Uh, leprosy is oftentimes a picture of sin. If you do not know this, this is just really seen throughout the scriptures. If you see someone who's like referred to as a leper, it's oftentimes a reflection or a picture of a greater issue, and that is a sin issue. The idea is not saying if you have leprosy, it's because it's you're a sinner. The idea is leprosy itself speaks of sin. I, I would encourage you guys, this is kind of, if you ever like read Leviticus, you're like, Josiah, there's nothing good in Leviticus. Yo, Leviticus has some good stuff, all right? Give it a break. Uh, but Leviticus is very interesting. In Leviticus 13, it actually talks about leprosy and how to treat it or how to deal with it or what if someone's cleansed of it or what if someone's diagnosed with it. And here's just a few key takeaways from Leviticus 13. I want you to see this. And it really does speak of how leprosy is a picture or a type of sin. Uh, here's, the, here's the idea. Like leprosy, ready? Sin is deeper than the skin. It describes leprosy. It's deeper than the skin. It, that it spreads and it spreads quickly. That leprosy, if you have it, it defiled you. You are defiled. You're considered unclean. It isolated you. You had to be removed from the people. You couldn't be with them. It just it defiled you in such a way you're removed from community. And it is only for the fire, meaning their clothes had to be burned, like the stuff they touched. You had to burn it up. You, you don't even want to take the risk. Like it was only meant, in a sense, for the fire. The reason why I'm showing you this, this is how leprosy speaks of sin. Think about it this way, right? Uh, sin, it's deeper than the skin. It spreads, it defiles, it isolates, and it is fit only for the fire. Leprosy, it's a great fantasy thing, by the way. I love that. Um, leprosy really does speak of sin. This guy, Naaman, by the way, so you're like, oh, he has leprosy. That's a big deal. Well, right away, the Bible's trying to say, no, 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 there's something deeper going on. There's something below the surface. God's not like, I, I don't want to just heal Naaman of his leprosy. I want to heal him of this sin problem. I want to heal him of the pride problem. I want to deal with the heart issues that is going on in this guy. It's crazy because God basically is like, I want to win him for the kingdom and to be an ambassador for me in Syria, which is essentially what he will go do. I want you to see that God doesn't just see your physical needs, but he sees what's below the surface. If you feel like, man, I have this physical thing going on, this need, it's not always as a, because of a result of sin, obviously. But the point I want to point out is that like, God's like, I also want to deal with this, the deeper heart-rooted idle things in your life. Maybe there's some sort of symptom, but let's get to the root. And he's like, I want to get to the root of the issue with Naaman. You guys follow along with me, right? So he's a great man, mighty man of valor, has everything going for him, all this money, wealth, prestige. He can speak to the king. He can do whatever he wants, essentially. But he's a leper, but he has a death sentence. Now, this is fascinating. I can't move over this. Like, I almost try to give her her own point. This little girl, this little girl is fascinating. Uh, we'll put the verse back up again, just the verse 2. It says, now the Syrians on, the, on one of the raids had carried off, it says, a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. This is fascinating. So here's the idea. Assyria, obviously, at times, a lot of times, at war with Israel. Israel, remember the north, the ten tribes, didn't really serve God. On one of these raids, they take one of these girls. And now she's working for Naaman's wife. She's a slave. I want you to think about this. It's most likely, I mean, she's ripped, she's ripped away from her parents. I can't imagine the fear of, as a little girl, it says little girl. I can't imagine the fear of being away from her mom and dad. Remember like, when you got lost in the grocery store, how terrifying that was? Like, mom, and you thought they're gone forever. She's true. Like, I can't imagine the fear. Like, oh, I'm taken away from my family. Her parents are most likely dead during one of the raids. At least the, the dad is. <laughs> one of the raids, they take this little girl. Now she's a slave to Naaman's wife. Now, here's why I bring this up, obviously. You can imagine what that dude in someone's heart. I mean, you have every right to be angry, bitter, frustrated. I hate these people. It's crazy because in her house, she's like, I just wish my Lord could meet with the prophet of Israel. It's unbelievable to me her perspective on her suffering. 
She has every right to crave justice. She has every right to want to see something change dramatically. She should probably would be, I'd probably be thinking, I just wish they were dead. I'm looking for a way to escape and get back home. I'm not encouraging to, to play into like the suffering and just like ignore it, but I'm saying God obviously had his hand on this little girl where she had a unique sense of beauty and forgiveness. She did exactly what the New Testament tells us to do. She loved her enemies, people who hated her. The phrase, if only, it's actually like worded like in this way of like, I only wish, like I wish my Lord could be healed and meet with the prophet. That's a really unique type of love. Like here's the thing. I don't want to just pass over this little girl from Israel. Obviously, that means she still believed in the power of God, the power of healing. She has this little girl to me has insane theology and practice of lifestyle, right? Like I can't, we can't really move on from this. This is a little girl. I go, oh my gosh, first of all, parents, whoever they are in Israel, like good job. Your little girl's taken into slavery and she's like, I just trust God. And you know what? I'm here for a reason. And here's what she eventually shares with this guy that leads to his salvation, that leads to his healing, that leads to his cleansing. Man, as Christians, listen, the world will hate you and me for what we believe. They'll despise us. They'll hate us. The only response is how do we love them? The only response is I have a cure. If only he could meet with God. The idea is, you guys, we have a cure that's offered to the world. The world, as we go on, might go, I just can't, I, I hate your values. I hate what you do. I hate how you view this and that and fill in the blank. And our response can be like, well, yeah, well, we hate you too. No. <laughs> our response is, we love you. Jesus loves you. There's a cure for the problem of pain, for the meaningless, for the void, for the sin issues going on. We have a cure for all of that stuff going on. If only you could meet with God, God would heal you. If only you could know the God I know. The God I know who says, well, I'm in slavery. Well, I'm in suffering. I'm okay. All is well. The God who shows me, you know what? He still is good. Would you not be bitter at God as a slave in a foreign land? If we got taken right now and brought to a different land as slaves, would we love those people? I look at this little girl and I go, oh my gosh, God, give me the faith of this little girl. <laughs> I need the faith of this little Hebrew girl in a foreign land. And she's like, I still believe in the power of God and only if you knew my God. Unbelievable, this little girl. Would you agree? Man, so mighty and powerful. So she goes like, if you only knew my God, if you only knew what he did, I love what Warren Wearsby said. He said, never underestimate the power of a simple witness. For God can take words from the lips of a child and carry them to the ears of a king. Just the beauty of a simple witness. So powerful. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul said, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. <laughs> that's, that's not the story. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Then he quotes the Jeremiah verse we just read, that if you're going to glory, glory in the Lord. She's like, you need to know my Lord. I have a prophet who knows God, and he can help, he can help you. He can, so he tells the wife, she tells the wife, the wife tells him. We'll pick up the story. Number two, we're going to see this. He's seeking the Lord now, but look at verse four. Verse four, keep going with the story. So it says, so Naaman, verse four, he went in and he told his Lord. He says, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. Like this is what she said. So the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent 
to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Verse 8, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman uh, came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. This is fascinating. Naaman goes, hey, king of Syria, man, could you do me a favor? I heard this prophet in the land of Israel send a letter to that king. So this king writes a letter to that king, the king of Israel. Hey, this is my boy. Take care of him. And then the king is like, who does he think I am? I'm not a god. I can't cure him. And then Elisha's like, oh, I heard about this little issue that's going on. Make sure you send him to me. I just love this story. So he goes to his house, and he's like, and Elisha doesn't even meet him. Elisha doesn't meet him. That's profound. He sends his servant to him. I want you to think about kind of this entourage that would be going with Naaman. Uh, Naaman's a general. Naaman brought about, if you do this, this, this talents of gold thing, it's about $5 million worth of gold, um, a couple million dollars worth of silver, the clothing, the chariots, the most likely the surrounding army with him to keep him safe. He goes to the king. The king's like, great, this is just a tactic to start war. Obviously, we can't give him his request. Elisha's like, I got him. Obviously, I'm trying to, I want you to see it, and God, I think, is trying to paint the picture really clearly of just how of a, of a mighty man he is, of how he has everything essentially going for him. When you read verse 5 and verse 9, and you think about the talents of gold, the silver, the clothes, the chariots, you're like, oh, this guy has it all. He's ready. He, in a sense, too, he's ready to purchase his salvation. All right, let's go. I need, he- I need cleansing. I need healing. Let me purchase it. I can, I, this is what we do. This is how our economy works. You want something? Money can usually fix the problem. And God's like, mm, that's not how it works in my econ- economy. You can't purchase what I got for you. You can't buy what I have for you. This is an absolutely profound, profound story. It says this too. I want you to understand this. Understanding Naaman's mindset is so key because this is how the world and how you and I once thought. It's almost like, oh, wait, what can I do to fix myself? How can I fix myself? How can I purchase this? How can I make this better? Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, read the verse, it says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Like, you, you understand, the way God does things is not the way the world does things. It doesn't always make sense. It doesn't always add up. God's like, I know you want to do it this way. This is how you normally do it. Like, normally, obviously, Elisha himself would meet with you, but he sends a servant. Normally, you think you could purchase this, but this is unpurchasable. You cannot buy it. You cannot do anything for it. And this is just fascinating how the story is going down. And it, it says this, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored. That's the message he's given. By the way, from where Elisha is to the Jordan is about 32 miles. He feels so offended. I just came all this way to meet with you. You won't even meet with me, and you send me 32 miles away? And so it really leads us to number three, which is resisting the Lord. He's frustrated by the message of salvation. The message of salvation frustrated him. If you want to be saved, here's what you have to do and receive. I don't like that. I understand, listen, the message of salvation is frustrating. To the world, it says the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Really, you believe some guy died on the cross for sins and that fixed it all? It's foolishness to the world. This message of salvation, it's foolishness to him. It makes him angry. Let's read verse 11. So verse 11, pick back up with me. But Naaman, it says, was angry. 
and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not uh, Abana and uh, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. I love this. He's like, come on, man. You couldn't even meet with me? Like, really, this is the message you give me? Our waters are way better than the Jordan. He still thinks it's like in physical terms. Like, oh, come on, Israel, if you've been to Israel and you've seen the Jordan River, I mean, it's just like mud water. It's just gross. You can like walk in sinking up to your knees. It's not, the, it's not like, oh, I want to drink from this water. It's primarily like um, fueled from like the Sea of Galilee. So you see like the, the river comes from like a lake. It's not like some beautiful glacier that's like, oh, this is crystal clear water. It's like gross, like lake water, all right? And he's like, why would he have me wash in this? Why did he just wave, like why? He could just wave his hand over me. Here's the idea, and here's the question. What did he really need to be cured of? This is what, what did he really need to be cured of? Was it his leprosy? God's like, yeah, that's what I want. It's so much more than that. Do you not know that this is what Jesus does so often in the Gospels? So in the Gospels, think of Mark chapter 2, the paralytic. He goes to Jesus. He's lowered in from a roof by his friends. He's obviously paralyzed. And Jesus is like, hey, man, your sins are forgiven. He's like, uh, Jesus, I don't know if you know why I'm here, but I'm paralyzed. Like, I didn't come here to have my sins forgiven. Um, I came to obviously be healed of my paralysis. Like, please heal me. But I love that Jesus is like, no, no, no. The thing you really need is forgiveness. There's something deeper going on, and I want to deal with that. Oh, yeah, by the way, rise, stand, pick up your mat, and just get out of here. And he's like, oh, I can do that now. I love this because Jesus dealt with both, and this is what we see happening here with the story of Naaman. Naaman's like, I want to be cleared of my leprosy. And God's like, I know that's what you think you want, but you actually need something else. So often we go to God with what we want, but God's like, let me deal with what you need. I think I do this still. God, here's what I want. God's like, mm, I know that's what you want, but here's what you need. Now, I love this because obviously God meets both. God does both. It's profound. But I love this because what did he really need to be cured of? His pride, his ego. Look at all they got, man. Look at these clothes, bro. Look at the, ga- the, the talents of gold, the $5 million worth it. Look, look, look at everything I have. Washing this Jordan dirty, disgusting river. Does he not know who I am? And you just see this. I love this because Tony Merida, an author, it's a longer quote, but he's like, this is basically what God does. Bear with me. Here's what he says. He says, the gospel must first humble us before it heals us. Yes. Everything about the gospel humbles us. It crushes our pride and our cultural assumptions. You must first humbly admit that you're a desperate sinner. Proud, morally relativistic people don't want to recognize this fact. You must Uh, humbly accept that Jesus, the one hung on a tree 2,000 years ago, is the only way of salvation. Proud, intellectual people don't want to embrace this fact either. You must also humbly acknowledge that you can't do anything, anything to earn salvation. Proud, self-made people don't want to admit this either. They want to justify themselves. They want to work out their own self-salvation projects. Indeed, Everything about the gospel humbles us. But for all those who do humble themselves, they will find grace and be exalted. Amen. Again, it's not the good people are in, the bad people are out. It's the proud are out, the humble are in. It's the idea of like, come on. Do you not know if you humble yourself, he'll exalt you. I love that he's like, couldn't he have just waved his hand? Do you know that he creates his own way of salvation? Why didn't God do it this way? Why does God have to use the cross? Why does there have to be blood spilled and resurrection? Why that way? Why didn't God do it this way? For some reason, we always think we have a better plan. Why can't he just wave his hand over me like a magic wand? It's like, that's just not how it works. 
This is how God wants to do it. Uh, Dr. Donald Barnhouse said this, everybody has the privilege of going to heaven God's way or going to hell their way. We go to heaven's God's way or we go to hell our way. He's like, don't we argue about the means in which God wants to heal, the means in which God wants to be salvation. This is how God wants to deal with it. I love how D.L. Moody so famously said about the story. He says, he had marked out a way of his own for the prophet to heal him and was mad because he didn't follow his plans. I I didn't think it'd be that way. That's not how I wanted to go. I didn't want him just to to tell me to go bathe seven times in this dirty river. No, no. I imagined me some, I thought God would do it some other way. I thought God would do it the way I wanted to. That's not how God always works. It's not always how you and I want. So I I love this. This is what happens. You kind of come face to face with the message of God and you resist it. And then we're going to see next him trust it. He trusts the Lord. And this is so often because of the the friends around him. He's like, hey, dude, don't you realize what God just told you to do? You might want to do it. So let's pick it up. Verse 13. Such a cool part. So Naaman has some servants with him. Look at verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, "Uh, my father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Man, I know all the ladies like, man, get me some of this water. I want this flesh like the little child. Listen, I love this. This is so cool. His servant's like, yo, what are you doing? All he said to do was dip yourself in the river. If he told you something mighty or great, would you not have done it? Why can't you just do this simple thing? It is so simple. It's crazy how the simplicity of the message is what really got to him. It's crazy. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 11.3? Do not be deceived by the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. I love that because you go, what? So you're telling me I can like just be a sinner my whole life, call upon Jesus and be saved? You're like, yeah, basically. <laughs> Like, no, no, no. That doesn't make sense. Like, now, obviously, you're, you're not going to be that way. You're going to change. God's going to grab hold of you. He's going to give you new desires, new will, new intent of the heart. But here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel says it doesn't matter. Um, you could be the most holy person who's ever lived and done everything right you think you should do. And yet, if you do not believe on Jesus, you are far from God. And you could be the most wicked, terrible her- human who ever lived, but you said, Jesus, save me. I need you. And God's like, I will save you, and I'll give you what you need. I'll give you salvation. The idea is that the, the gospel is so simple. Believe on him and you will be saved is what Paul told the people in the book of Acts. Believe on him and you'll be saved. It's too simple, man. I, I know. It's too good to be true. It's true. It's one of those things where like, I don't like the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. I know, but it's so simple and it's so simply for profound that yes, a child can understand this, an adult will wrestle with this, but it's just saying, believe on Jesus. Just this idea of just trust in the Lord, it is so simple. He goes, man, just wash. Deal Moody said this, he lost his temper. Listen, then he lost his pride. Then he lost his leprosy. That is generally the order in which proud, rebellious sinners are converted. I love that. He lost his temper. He lost his pride. So he obeyed. Then he lost his leprosy. Maybe you've heard the gospel of Jesus. And you're like, ah, I'm not a sinner. Maybe you guys are. All right, let go of that. You are. Welcome to the club. You're a sinner like me. You, you got to get angry, then you kind of lose your pride. Like, you know what? I'll embrace this. And then you go, you know what? I've actually lost all the baggage, all the filth, all the sin, all the negativity. I gave up my pride, my ego, and I gained the world. I gave it all up, and God gave me something so much greater than I ever could imagine. You notice what verse 13 says? I'm going to put in the New King James because I think it's actually well-worded. According to the Hebrew, it says this, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have not done it? Isn't that interesting? He's like, if he told you, hey, Naaman, you want to be cleansed? 
you're going to go climb this mountain. You're going to face a three-headed dragon. Behind the dragon, there's this golden apple. You retrieve the apple. You bring it to me. You'll be cured of your leprosy. He is there and be like, let's go. Like, he wanted that story. He wanted the story to be like, I did it. Look what I did. We want this idea of like, I participated with God, not just I received something from God. And it's this idea of like, look what I accomplished. And it's like, that's not how it works. You're going to do something that's humble. You're going to take off your clothing, dip in the river. You're going to expose your sin or your leprosy to everyone around you. That's a humbling humility. You're going to be naked, in a sense, walking this river before your servants. They're going to see the real you. Do you get it? They're going to see the real you. Your skin, imperfect, diseased. They're going to see the real you. And then you're going to come out new. It's crazy because that's what it is. It's like, man, but when I come to Jesus, they're going to see the real me. Yes. But the beautiful thing is that you come out new. The beautiful thing is God makes all things new. Don't be afraid to expose your sin, your shame, your filth. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid to show the world, look at, look at this is the real me. Yeah, I know it's gross. Me too. Us too. And yet God makes all things new. And he dips the river and comes out brand new, <laughs> childlike skin, which is just so cool. She's like, what the heck? By glory, like, who is this guy? Just, he just comes out new. It's so sweet. So he went down, he dipped. My, my point of this is um, God really had to get to his ego and his pride for him to be brought in. Think about it this way. Naaman was an insider his whole life. I mean, he's in the inner circle of the king of Syria. He's a general. He has everything going for him. Like, have you ever seen like the, the cool people? The people like they have it all. They have everything going for them. And you're like, maybe I could hang out with them. And they're like, not you. Like, if you've been an outsider, it's not a fun thing. Naaman was an insider. And God's like, you need to be an outsider. Be an outsider. Be on the outside. They're gonna see the real you. They're gonna see all of that. And then you'll be brought in. It, it's again, the the prouder out, the humbler in. It's the uh, this is gonna be uncomfortable. This is gonna ex- be exposing. And yet, this is when I make all things new. So he goes, he dips, he makes all things new. He's cleansed, he's healed, and then he serves the Lord. Pick up in verse 15. I just, his response is f- amazing. It's fascinating. Verse 15, he serves the Lord. Look what he says. Verse 15, it says, Then he returned to the man of God. So remember, he went 32 miles away. They're like going by the Jordan. It's like, just dip in, bro. What's the worst that could happen? He dips in. And then he's like, okay, let's go back to the man of God 32 miles later. He goes back, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is, listen, there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He's saved. That's salvation. That's a confession of faith. Do we get that? There's no God but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. The Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. He's saying, I want the earth from Israel. I'll explain that. I want the earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this manner, may the Lord pardon. May he forgive your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, one of the Syrian gods. He goes, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. You're like, what is going on? He's like, there is no God except your God. This is absolutely amazing. Let me give you gifts. No gifts. I don't want you to think for a second you participated in your salvation because you didn't. No gifts. You did not participate in your salvation. Don't forget that. So no, I don't want it. He's like, well, let me just get some loads of earth. And that was a way for them to be like, um, this is the land of the one true God. I want this land to go back with me to my land. I want to bring this with me. Let me bring this earth back with me to my, my God. I'm not going to worship any other God. So when I do go into the house of Ramon, 
may the Lord just pardon and forgive me because I'm really going to be worshiping God. I'm really going to be worshiping him. Now, I love it. It's not like he's like, let me just correct your bad theology really quick. All right. Like, you understand, he's like newly saved. When the people get newly saved, they usually say some dumb things. And they usually do some dumb things. There's sanctification. There's a process. We've got, we got to be patient with one another. But what I love this. He's, he says a confession. Of faith. There's no God but your God. I'm only going to worship him. I'm forsaking all other gods. Know that when I go into this temple, I'm not going to really worship him. So may God forgive me. It's just fascinating what he's, he's doing. There's a confession of faith. His mind has changed. His heart has changed. A few things I try to like write down about this. He says, behold, I know that there is no God at all the earth but in Israel. I want to put this up in verse 11. I want to contrast this, guys. If it's a few slides down. Verse 11, verse 15. He says, behold, I thought, remember, I thought he would come wave his hand and he would heal me. I thought the Lord would do it this way. I thought the Lord worked in that way. Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and call upon him. I thought he'd go down this way. Now verse 15, behold, I know that there is no God in all of the earth but in Israel. I love this because pre-experience with God, you're like, I thought God was like this. But once you experience God, you're like, behold, I know. Behold, I thought. Why are Christians so confident? Because when you've experienced and encountered the living God, you go from thinking to knowing. Let him who glory in this, what? That he knows me that he knows me. Behold, I thought, behold, I know. I know. You got to understand his mind. When you, a true conversion, your mind has changed. There's just that. It's like, hey, my ways, my plans, my thoughts, my gods, uh-uh. That's not, that didn't work. If you've experienced living God, you will forsake all other gods that you once worshiped. The gods that you once thought would bring you meaning and joy and life, like all of that, you realize it's been so empty my whole life. I'm not going to go back to those gods. The God of wealth, the God of sex, the God of pleasure, the God of power, the God of fill in the blank. I thought those things would bring it for me. I'm forsaking all others. So the one true God who met the deepest needs of my heart, he met me. Behold, I thought, behold, I know. Know this, when you've encountered God, your mind does change. I, so often, it's like, we're not trying to say change your mind. We're saying come to God, experience living God, and he will change your mind. Like come to him. Let him do that. Let him renew your mind. Then you see him be like, I want to be generous. Let me be generous. And, and here's the idea. Generosity is a beautiful response to the gospel. It's great to be gener generous. But in his stance, in his instance, it, no, it's like, I don't want you to think that you work for this. Don't, don't fall in line with that. Then he's like, I, he, notice what he says. He goes, behold your servant. He's like, I'm your servant now. He calls himself this, a servant of the one true God. Like, I'm going to serve your God. I'm going to serve with you. He literally refers himself over like, twice, like a servant, a servant. And he has real, genuine worship. He's like, I only want to worship your God. May God pardon and forgive me if I walk in this temple. I'm bringing this earth in. I'm going to slip it into my temple. I'm going to really worship the one true God. Basically, now I'm going to be an ambassador for God in my kingdom and my land. I'm going to go back to my homies. I'm going to go back to my people. I'm going to worship the one true God. So often when people get saved, they're like, now I just want to only be around Christians. I don't ever want to be around my non-believing friends again. No, go back to your non-believing friends and bring the one true God with you to them. Like, go, go back. Say, no, I need to, I need to like inside out change this culture. I need to inside out go in covertly, but I'm also going to be very bold in what I'm worshiping now. And I love this. He goes back as an ambassador to his own land. It's unbelievable what's happening. I, I, forgive me how I wrote this down. It might be bad grammar, but I, I wrote it this way. He came with treasure and left with dirt. Dirt was now more valuable to him than the treasure. When you encounter the living God, your priorities change what you value significantly changes. He's like, I just want dirt. Can you give me dirt, Elisha? Like, that is so weird. Like, uh, yeah, take the dirt, bro. Like, I brought dirt, but I just, I, I mean, I brought treasure. Just, I just want some dirt now. Because it's like, I just want to keep with me this moment where God radically changed my life. I, I thought treasure would satisfy, but it's really more about the encounter with God that I want to bring with me. 
another way I try to write it, you would rather have an experience with the living God than the treasure you once valued. That's what he's saying by this dirt. I would rather have an experience with the living God than this treasure I came with, than this treasure I once valued. Who cares? Just give me dirt. <laughs> give me dirt. The place where I experienced God, way better. How much better is God? God's word is better than gold, better than treasure, better than silver, the psalmist. It's better than anything the world can offer me. Just give me dirt. I want that. I want to remember where I experienced God, how I experienced God. It's absolutely beautiful. This is why I believe in Luke 4. Jesus is like, remember all the other lepers in the nation of Israel? Only one was saved. His name was Naaman. He was not a Jew. He's a Gentile. Grace is available to everyone. Grace is absolutely available to everyone. Your pri his pride almost kept him from being cleansed and healed. His ego, his, I'm not going to lower myself. It almost, like, it just almost kept him away. Listen, I'll say this. Let go of your pride. Let go of your eagle. Watch God radically meet you. We're going to close, and it won't be as long, I promise. It'll be very quick. I promise, promise. Number two is this. <laughs> the story of Gehazi is the story of greed. The story of greed. So he experiences grace. Gehazi is like, I want Naaman's life. Let's just pick up. We'll just read the whole section, and that's it. Verse 19. Verse 19, the second half. He said to him, go in peace. Go back, right? Verse 19. Read with me. Come on. Look down. I want you to read it. So good. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, uh, see, my master has spared this name in the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. I want something. Verse 21. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. Uh, my master has sent me to say, uh, there have now, just now, come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men uh, of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. Verse 24. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent them, the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? I don't know, this reminds me of the garden. Where have you been? He said, uh, Your servant went nowhere. <laughs> but he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. One's a story of grace, one's a story of greed. I just want to point out a couple of things. So many commentators make this correlation. He obviously reminds us greatly of Judas. He's with this, his master. He's seen the works and the miracles of God. He's seen God move in powerful ways. And he's like, I just want money. I don't care. Like, if you remember in John chapter 12, the woman who broke the alabaster flask poured out on the feet of Jesus, and Judas is like, what a waste of money. This could have been, you know, sold and given to the poor. What a liar. He's a liar like that. He didn't really care about that. I have been nowhere. What are you talking about? This idea, I'll put it this way, like Judas, Gehazi seemed concerned for the poor when all the while he was interested only in himself. He's like, there's some, you know, hungry prophets too that came down. Can we just feed the prophets? He, you know, you're a liar. You're acting like you care for people, but you don't really care for people. He's pulling a Judas card in the Old Testament. D.A. Carson said this, greed ultimately leads to spiritual poverty as it hinders our ability to trust in God's provision and tempts us to place our security in wealth rather than him. 
We have to see this. If you, the desire, the, that, this greed, it will always lead to spiritual poverty. Here's the idea. We know this in 1 Timothy 6. Um, money is not evil. We know what Paul said. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money is not evil. It's, an, it's really neutral, according to scriptures. However, the love of it is a root of all kinds of evil. It will lead your heart astray. Those who desire it, he says, fall into a temptation and snare. Just even the desire of it. It's fascinating because you're like, I desire it. Like, this is one of those things. That, this is a heart idol I have to fight just like you have to fight. You know, is money bad? No, but the love of it or the desire for it more than the desire of God. He literally says you're marking yourself like you're cutting yourself. It's almost like painful to yourself. You're hurting yourself when you desire this more than you desire God. We have to be aware of what this can do. It's like God was doing something so beautiful, like grace, salvation, cleansing, healing. And he goes, but I want that life. I have this life all the time. And he, he really started to not appreciate it. I'm with Elisha, seeing miracles nonstop, seeing God move nonstop. But I want what the world has. So he had longing eyes for what the world had. You have to see, we have to be so careful in this place where you can see God moving and working and God stirring your heart, God moving your heart, maybe years, decades ago. Some time goes by and you're like, but you know what? What the world has looks pretty good. And it's such a dangerous thing that we can easily fall into that trap. But notice this. He fell for that mistake, and he loses everything. We have to be aware. I, I try to write it out this way. He lost his health. He lost his honor. He lost his home because now he's a leper. He lost his helpful position. He lost everything. He lost his honor. You're not going to get out. He lost his home. You're a leper. You're outcast from the community. You have the wealth. Notice the wealth was still there. God's like, hey, now turn in the wealth. Turn the money in. Sure, you want that? Keep it. But you lose everything else. This is fascinating. He had everything he wanted, but he lost that. I love what J. Verde McGee said about this. He says, no one, or he says, sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. You probably heard that. It's absolutely true. Sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. He's like, I want that. Okay. Notice this, he got it but lost everything. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? This is exactly what's going on with, with Gehazi. This is one of those things we have to be aware of that can haunt all of our hearts. You can be around the works of God, the miracles of God, and say, but what the world has, that looks good. Do not forget the grace of God. Do not forget how God's economy works differently. No, it's crazy. Think about it this way. He's like, I want Naaman's life. And he got Naaman's life. I want Naaman's life. I want the wealth and the prestige. And I want that. You got the wealth and you got his leprosy. You got his life. You got the wealth. And you got the Naaman's like, I don't want my life. You want my life? Go ahead. I don't want that. Naaman's like, I want this new life that God has given me. I want the, the new life where my leprosy is cleansed and God has dealt with the heart idol. I want that new life. And he's like, I want your life. Okay. He got what he wanted. It's crazy. He, he basically took all Naaman's life, the wealth and the leprosy. We have to see that. Naaman knew it wasn't worth it. It's not worth it. I'll give it up. He got cleansed. He got healed. Here, here's the thing. I just want to close out with this. Salvation is a gift. Value that gift. Love the gift. Receive the gift. I love what the author, he said, do not neglect the gift of salvation. Don't neglect it. I love that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What a gift we have in Jesus. Don't fall for the trap that something else will meet your heart's deepest needs. Only Jesus will. Gehazi, he just forgot about that. He lost sight of that, and he took on his leprosy. But there's another man who also took on, in a sense, leprosy. 
There's another man who said, I'm going to willingly step into sin. I'm going to willingly take on sin so that you might have my life. There's an exchange between Naaman and Gehazi, but there's this exchange between Jesus who took on our sin and gave us his righteous life. One was not purposeful. One was purposeful. One was like, you got my life. You don't really want Naaman's life. It's not great. But Jesus said, you got my life. I'll take on your sin. I'll take on your leprosy, and I'll give you new, new skin, new life. Thank you, Jesus, for this gift. Amen? I just want to end and worship him. Can we do that? Can we just end by singing to him, worshiping him, this great gift of salvation? Can we say, yes, I'll worship no other God but him. Let's just not leave. Let's not be in a rush. Let's just worship this one true God. Let's worship. Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Jesus, you are worthy of it all, that this world will not meet our needs like you, Jesus. That, Jesus, you are exactly what our hearts are made for, and we're only satisfied when we rest in you. And so we look to you, Jesus, and say thank you for what you've done. Help us to not believe the lie that something else will meet our needs. Jesus, we ask that today we would just remember and fall in love with you and this wonderful gift of grace. That, God, that though we were lepers, that we were sinners just from head to toe, covered in sin, that, Jesus, you've washed us by your blood, that we have been saved not by works of righteousness, but by your love, by your mercy. We thank you, Jesus. We just want to worship you now and praise you now. God, I ask that all of us in this room, I know we're all prone to wander. We're prone to giving in to these heart idols. We're prone to thinking something else will satisfy us. But Jesus, we ask that today you remind us nothing else will meet the deepest needs of our heart like you. So we look to you. We want to cling to you, fix our eyes on you, and say, Jesus, you are worthy. In your precious name, amen. Church, let's just stand and close out in worship.